Welcome to the Canine Conservationist podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything that links those three. I'm Kayla Fratt, a co-founder of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Laura, Morgan, and Joe from Conservation Dogs Collective, as well as Emily from Auburn University, about a fascinating project undertaken to detect New Zealand mud snails. We're going to specifically be talking quite a bit about discrimination as part of our mini-series on this topic, helping our dogs stay on target in the presence of other similar odors, or generalizing to similar odors in the situation where your target odor is difficult to obtain or train on. Since we've got so many guests on this episode, we're going to skip our science highlight and dive right in. So let's start out with our introductions of who you are, what your role was in this project, and the dogs that you share your life with. We'll start with Laura and then head on over to Joe, Morgan, and Emily will round us out. All right. Thank you, Kayla, for having us on. This is going to be fun and nerdy (laughs) and a lot of really good sharing from what we've learned. So I'm Laura Holder. I'm the executive director and Canine Keeper with Conservation Dogs Collective. Um, I have two finders, Ernie and Betty White, who have been involved with this program in particular since 2020, which sounds so long ago. (laughs) But we've been involved from the very beginning and through all the fun phases and learning that we're going to be talking about today. Hi, I'm Jo. I'm also a keeper uh, with Conservation Dogs Collective. I have Finder Holly. And uh, my official involvement really only started with this project this year when we um, obtained a grant to continue the work and to get um, even deeper into the the discrimination and um, detection task ahead of us. I'm Morgan. I am also a canine keeper at Conservation Dogs Collective. My involvement with the project started last year when we really started looking at the how are we going to turn this into research? We've got a great concept. Now let's make it something really cool. Hi, I'm Emily. Um, as you mentioned, I work with Auburn University and their uh, College of Veterinary Medicine. And I came on this project a couple years ago to help with um, some of the design and analysis of the project. Excellent. So why don't we, we're going to zoom back or take a half step back now. And just for anyone who doesn't know, what is a New Zealand mud snail? Why do they matter? I mean, I'm sure we've got plenty of people at home who don't know whether this is an endangered species that we're trying to protect or an invasive species we're working on managing and eradicating. So someone give us a good lowdown on our New Zealand mud snails. Yeah. So New Zealand mud snails are native to surprise new zealand (laughs) in the united states Um, they are considered an invasive species they've been here since about 1987 Um, they were first kind of discovered in um, idaho where conservation dogs collective is kind of rooted in the upper midwest region Um, they're a known invasive in multiple states in our area Um, and some of the concern about why they're such nasty little invasives for our our native ecosystems. They're super tiny. They're about the size of a grain of rice when they're fully grown. Um, The females are born pregnant and they give birth to live babies and they can have, you know, like 300 babies, which is just terrifying um, (laughs) in so many levels. Um, Because they are so small, that makes them really, really good at hitchhiking a ride on fishing equipment. So um, in Wisconsin, they're found in the Driftlist region of the state. That's along the Mississippi River. Um, It's a class one trout fishing, like a area. So fishers from all around the United States and even around the world come into that part of the um, state here and do fishing. So these little buggers will get themselves into the tread of waders or fishing gear or watercraft and all that. Um, They can also bypass the digestive tract of fish. So they have no known natural predators in the United States, which is also, again, terrifying. And then on top of that, they can also live outside of the water for several weeks. So just think about tiny grains of rice, you know, making their way everywhere all over the landscape and um, fishing systems, freshwater systems. 
Wow. Yeah. Thank you for that, Laura. And I grew up, so my dad was the county conservationist, land and water conservationist for Ashland County. And I grew up with pamphlets about these aquatic invasives, AIS, you know, in on our kitchen table and reading them. And I still don't think I realized just how nasty these guys are. Um, I mean, I know you said it, but again, it's just stunning that they're born pregnant. They can survive out of the water for several weeks. So clean, drain, dry isn't going to do the trick and they're the size of a grain of rice. Um, That's a huge challenge. Canine Conservationist is thrilled to offer a self-study online class for those interested in joining the field of conservation dog professionals. This course includes 18 modules of video lecture, assigned reading, homework, and quizzes. We have lectures from 10 amazing guest instructors, including fostering motivation and joy through high placement training with Laura Holder of Conservation Dogs Collective, safety training and assessments of dog teams with guests Fiona Jackson and Tracy Litton of Skyless Ecology, special considerations for insect and plant training samples with Arden Blumenthal of the New York, New Jersey Trail Conference, and building networks and acquiring clients with Paul Bunker. Our alumni group is active and supportive, and we welcome students of all levels and backgrounds. The course is priced at $750 with generous financial aid and discounts available for Patreon members. Learn more and sign up at canineconservationist.org slash class. So I think that gives us a really good foundation of why we might be paying attention to these New Zealand mud snails. So how did this project come to Conservation Dogs Collective and what were the initial goals of, of this project? Yeah, the project kind of came to us from a connection we had with the Wisconsin DNR and the River Alliance of Wisconsin. So the River Alliance of Wisconsin is a nonprofit that's dedicated to doing all sorts of really great freshwater um, education and uh, programming. And they both learned about us in their backyard, so to speak. And they were like, hey, there's these little nasty New Zealand mud snails that are in our waterways. Can your dogs be trained to detect them? So it's not uncommon for lots of conservation orgs to get that question, like, can your dogs, you know, detect this? And then, you know, so we started some conversations around, you know, where and why and all the how and all that stuff. Um, And it came down to just kind of getting some funding to do an initial pilot study. um, And we involved four dogs on the initial year in 2020 to start the program. So what were some of your concerns initially regarding dog performance on this project? Was there anything just even uh, on that initial email or as you started training that had you wondering or worrying about how the dogs were going to perform here? Uh, I would say in general, and I know everybody else in the room can probably attest to this, in general because there is no history of dogs being used to detect New Zealand mud snails anywhere in the world, we were somewhat, you know, creating this method for this particular species so besides the like oh my god maybe my dog can't smell a new zealand bun snail thought that we all kind of have at times um a lot of it was around how do we safely use the dogs first and foremost so because they the new zealand mud snails are so easy to be transferred from the waterways we decided early on that the dogs were not going to go into the field and do shoreline surveys or any kind of, um, you know, method application where they might be a vector for actually spreading the snails. So that was one thing right away where um, it was going to be more of a snails come to the dogs in more container or um, lineup setups like that. So in some ways, I was like, ooh, that's going to be really easy because the dogs aren't traversing a bunch of terrain. But at the same time, the performance of the dogs is going to be, for my two, they were so used to going out and sniffing in more natural areas that um, it was a consideration like, hey, well, this should be easy on them. But then as we learned as the years went on, (laughs) some of the performance outcomes of doing that type of work um, were shedding some light on that method. Um, an application differently. Yeah, definitely. That's a variety of things that are um, quite different from a lot of the work that we see you all doing out on out in the, the big wide world. So what um, would the goal then be to be taking kind of water or soil samples from areas and having the dogs kind of thumbs up, thumbs down, whether or not they were detecting the snails? Yeah, there's like 400 pages of notes that I have for this because in the original days, so in, t- in the original days, meaning in 2020, when we've 
kicked off this program. Um, the training started in early September of 2020, and we had about eight weeks of training the dogs on snails that a group of people painstakingly like went with tweezers and isolated out for us so we could do initial um, target odor training and building the relevance around target odor. And then from there, I was creating my own, I'll say like hot samples that simulated field work. So um, rocks and sediment that were pulled from bodies of water that did not have New Zealand mud snails in them. I actually like made them New Zealand mud snaily in uh, mason jars and uh, Ziploc bags. So I did all that training in about eight weeks, which is a pretty short amount of time. I was only doing one or two days a week of training because um, of my schedule at that time. Um, and then we went into a test day in mid-November, and shortly thereafter, Emily joined us <laughs> from all the results there. Uh, but in mid-November, we it was in the middle of COVID too, right? So we met outside in a parking lot, and uh, we ran Ernie and Betty White on five different sets of sediment and substrates that were pulled from the field. And so the DNR and some of their partners had collected those samples, um, but only a couple of them were from known water bodies with New Zealand mud snail populations. And then the vast majority were either unknown or um, known to be blank. So I don't know if that totally answers your question <laughs> without going down too many uh, details there, but we we didn't have a ton of um, opportunity to train the dogs before testing day on known positives that were pulled from the field is some something that I would share. Yeah, that's Wait. that's always an important yeah. <laughs> important thing to remember and certainly challenging. I know. Um, yeah, we talk about this all the time. How difficult sample acquisition can be. Um, yeah in this field. Um, so Emily, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came in on this project um, and a little bit more about um, kind of when and how that became relevant uh, for, for your work. The whole reason that I kind of contacted Emily too was I got these results from the testing day in November and we did a little second run in December as well. And I was like, the dogs are like indicating a lot like, yes, this has snails in it. Yes, this also has snails. And I was like, this, I mean, great, right? Like, great. <laughs> they're, they're getting a lot of rewards and everything. But I was also like, I don't know if they're actually correct because nobody knew ahead of time if there were a bunch of snails in there and they just didn't have time or funding to go back and sift through all the samples and see like, okay, what was the infestation, you know, population rate in some of these samples? So... Um, that's when Emily and I started talking and I'm like, I need some data here to really kind of address what the next phase of this program should be, right? To really set the dogs up for success and also the stakeholders for um, like, okay, this is what we know now, but there were some big areas of improvement for how we did this first part of training. So, um, Well, I was contacted by Laura um, after she'd gone through the first iteration of testing with the dogs. And, um, and so I took a look at her, her data set and said, okay, well, we have, um, we have a lot of information here, but how would we want to analyze it in order to um, determine where we are in the, both the training and testing, do the dogs know the scent? What, what can we get out of this data set? And so I took a look at it and um, and from the results that I saw, um, I made some suggestions for um, how it might how it might work in a future iteration so that we had all the data that we needed in order to properly analyze uh, the results and have, a full picture of what was happening. Um, so I kind of stepped in to say, we just, we need to think about how, um, how future, uh, whether it be lineups or, well, any sort of testing scenario, um, we need to figure out what it is that we need to get out of this before we move forward. So yeah, Emily, as much as you're able to share, what were some of the recommendations that you made kind of for the teams going forward? Um, to, to help make sure that we could actually answer some of these questions that Laura wanted answered. 
Well, a lot of times when we are trying to provide a, an analysis of, of the data like this, we need, um, we need to have at least a, a set of um, known true conditions. So we need to know um, if a sample is positive or is negative. We've already mentioned that truly it's difficult to know that when you have an unknown sample. So uh, one of the things that I suggested was that we needed to have um, more known positives and known negatives. And so a lot of what what I did was help brainstorm how can we create these types of samples so that we can have um, uh, our known positives, our known negatives, and that we can observe the behavior of the dogs and determine if they're alerting on um, the positives and not on the negatives. Um, so that allows us to do an analysis. And so this gives us a basis of um, understanding what the dogs are capable capable of in the context of these known samples and it will generally allow us to say when we're giving them unknown samples what um whether you know with what probability are the dogs going to be right um so this probability of detection um, and and all of all of this information is background that you want to understand. You know, within the certain testing context, how the dog is operating before you go into the unknowns. So that's. Um, but as we will discuss here in a minute, it's a lot trickier than it sounds. Yeah, that does sound really tricky. And so what was kind of the process then of chatting with the DNR and everyone about actually getting all of these known and unknown samples, um, you know, with uh, an invasive that's this prolific? How hard is it to even get a really good known negative sample that has, you know, like, I've got to imagine we're thinking about substrate, we're thinking about water quality, we're thinking about all of these other covariates within the odor profile. What did that look like? That was incredibly difficult. It was incredibly difficult. It was, can anyone guarantee that there aren't snails there? No. The answer was 100% of the time, no. We cannot guarantee that there are not snails in any of the watersheds. So that caused us to need to get very creative. Um, and, and, I mentioned before that we're trying to work within, you know, we give the dogs essentially in a laboratory, we can set up these positives and negatives, but these are, you know, in some sense, they're created. We, we can get a known, you know, a known positive from the, from the water, from, from the watershed. Um, but yes, the known negative is, is very much trickier. I think we had, so internally with the group, the keepers and Emily, um, we had, I swear it was probably six to 12 meetings just talking about like, but how can we try to make samples that are negatives, right? Like with garden soil or sand or whatever. And then we just kept going around in circles in a way. Um, meanwhile, the whole to answer like the client stakeholder side of the equation, Kayla, the DNR and the River Alliance of Wisconsin had complete open, honest um, you know, conversations with us, but also like faith in the way that we were approaching the dog training side of things. Um, so that was really something to, you know, be <laughs> very respectful and mindful of. And also like, that's a great opportunity for us to really try to take the lead on, you know, this is how the dogs should be utilized, which again, but then at the same time, you're like, okay, now we have to figure all this out. <laughs> so um, Morgan, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, we can get into the, the stimulus set breakdown then probably if you don't. Oh my gosh, I don't have a whole lot to add right here, but I will say this is like when I came in and it made my head spin because there was so many different questions to answer and you can't answer every question in a single study or even just in like two or three studies. 
you really have to narrow your focus. So when I jumped in, my perspective of things was like, holy cow, which direction are we going? It's narrowed down a lot, but you know, this is kind of a hallmark of conservation work is that this is all uncharted territory all the time. And it's so hard to pick a direction and know which way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, Laura, I just want to underline what you said about it sounds like you had really, really good supportive open project partners here and like hats off to Wisconsin DNR for that. That's really great to hear. So yeah, let's, let's get into it. Then, you know, we've got, we've got these results, these initial results that don't quite make sense. We've got our, our dream team consultant brought on. Now, what are we doing? Um, so I call this like the 2022 to 20 or 2021 to 2022 phase two study. So we, from the ground up or from the paper up, um, we built a brand new study design and where we ended up landing was we identified kind of three phases of training, which again, in hindsight, you're like, should have just done maybe one, (laughs) right? Three phases of training where we focus in on um, doing stimulus sets. And this is where I'm going to pass the mic to Emily because you're the one that did all the kind of proactive research on like, here's what we should probably try out with the dogs. My thought on training the dogs would be that first we really want to build the relevance of the mud snail. We want them to understand what is hot, but my thoughts also in this kind of second phase was that at some point we'd also want our dogs to be able to demonstrate that they could discriminate the mud snails from many other common uh, organisms, other stimuli that were in uh, in the water, uh, the water itself, the chemicals that were floating in the water, the actual organisms. And again, this is where, yeah, our heads started to spin at how many different variables, um, different different sense, different, um, you know, live versus dead, uh, upstream, downstream. We were just the threshold of detection. We started going down all of these different paths. Um, so we tried at first. So what I had thought was we should start with simple sets where this has a mud snail, this doesn't, and have the dogs really understand that they need to give us a, an indication when a mud snail is present and then slowly build up the complexity of, of the stimulus that was presented to them. So I kind of came up with a potential sequence of, of samples that the dogs would be trained on. So they would need, um, they would need to find the mud snail in a simpler set and then a more complex set and then a more complex set. And each set, the dog would need to be 80% successful before they could move on to the next set. How did that go, Laura? Oh, it was fun. So my freezer was full of all sorts of other creepy crawlies because of this too. So in addition to just the sample acquisition and storage aspect, I want to touch on that because because we decided to go this route and then that meant again we had some really great volunteers that were like picking out native snails you know and then caddisfly and black fly larvae and crawfish and weird plants that i don't know the name of anymore right um so we set up those those sets that emily was talking about so we'd have a snail in distilled water and then we would have um let's say the crawfish would be in with the snails in that same jar. And then we would have a jar with just a crawfish in it. And that's what we presented. So we had our control with just the crawfish um, and then our crayfish, right? Depending on where you live. Uh, Snails with the crawfish in the other jar. So at first, you know, like we did, um, gosh, let me look at my my notes here. Because we did, I think, eight weeks of training again. and all of the training setups were known. So I knew like the snails are going to be in this one, you know, reward the dog for a correct indication here. So things were going along really well. Um, and that was from, I think, October to December of 2021. And then we started doing some testing, blind testing for me and the dogs in January. Um, 
and Ernie was about 67% accurate. Betty was 100% accurate in the first set of trials. And then we did a couple blind searches the next week. And then Ernie went to 100 and then Betty went to 50%. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> right? So I'm going like, what is happening? Um, <laughs> this is where Joe started to get my 911 calls of, Joe, I need to talk to you about this. Morgan, Emily, help. Like something's going on with the dog's results, right? So I knew enough at that point. I'm like, I have to pump the brakes with the approach um and that's that's where we kind of just pause the program for a while and again like i told the dnr the river alliance like this is what's happening this is what we're seeing with this study designed and the outcomes um so that opened a whole nother discussion on the the training setup again so you can see how like we're like yes things are going great and then you hit another roadblock or a speed bump or sometimes it felt like a brick wall right because we're all human and we have feelings as well so yeah gosh that sounds really tough and um yeah so joe and morgan why don't you hop in now um with you know what were some of your initial thoughts or hypotheses as you're getting these 911 calls from laura um from the field and um you know emily will have you hop in as much as you'd like here and then we'll talk about okay now what's our next pivot (laughs) Yeah, thanks. So, so um, just like Morgan, my first thought was, "Gosh, this is hard." <laughs> my head was uh, was spinning a little bit too. Um, I guess my f- my first reaction, as has already been alluded to, was that um, this isn't really a search task. This isn't really what we normally do. This isn't really our bread and butter. This is a signal detection task. Um, so, what I mean by that is that uh, we're trying to um, detect a signal. Um, in a sample, uh, well, the dogs are, not me, um, and we're not really sure what that signal is and how do we define what that signal is. Um, and, and on top of that, the, le- the next level of complexity is that the dog needs to simultaneously um, be able to be very sensitive to that signal and learn the sensitivity of that signal because we need to catch um, the odour of these snails in these samples early so that they can bring in the management management tools. But plus, the dog also has to be very precise because they can't be distracted by any noise that's in the signal. Um, so in our teaching process, we have to eliminate as much bias as possible. Uh, and my concern about it was, as well, was that because it's not a search task and it's not really what the dogs normally do, it could be kind of a bit boring and repetitive for them as well as being quite taxing because we're asking a lot of them from their olfactory systems. So we need to find ways to mitigate um, any biases that um, might come in and try to reduce the response cost for them and motivate them to do the task really, really well. Um, And I I guess we probably should define some of the terms that we're throwing around. (laughs) Um, So signal detection has, um, when you detect a signal, there's four possible outcomes. So you can have a hit or a miss, or a correct rejection, or a false alarm, uh, the four, four possible outcomes of detecting a signal. And when you're looking for um, improving sensitivity, you're trying to determine uh, the proportion of the samples that are correctly identified as containing the odour in relation to the number of, of um, samples that truly do contain it. So that comes back to the conversation about how really important it is to know if you're your sample contains the odor or not. And then the precise element is to ensure that the proportion of the samples that are correctly identified as containing the odor, um, how, how many of those are there are in relation to the actual yes responses given by the dog. So um, in other words, how well can the dog pick the snail odor out from the noise? So you're looking at um, all the false alarms they give and the hits they give and how many of those are hits. So what are the proportion of hits in relation to false alarms? Um, yeah, I don't know if Morgan wants to to jump in here. Joe, I feel like you were reading my notes. <laughs> you, you took all of the words <laughs> right out of my mouth. I have really nothing to add. But I know that you probably have a whole lot to say about motivating dogs and, and influencing that bias through training decisions. One of the things that I worried about with this was that I think we can get a little bit tripped up specifically with this project because when we when we think about detection typically, we tend to view it as having a right and a wrong answer. So 
to throw some more technical terms in, we, we think about there being a discriminative stimulus, an SD and as an S delta. So a yes and a, a, a correct and, a, and an incorrect response. But the problem with this particular project is that um, we want the dogs to detect, we want the dogs to say, um, to be accurate in um, saying that the sample does contain the odour, but we also want them to be very accurate in saying that it doesn't. So in some ways, there's two correct answers. Um, and we want to make sure the dog understands that. And so we started to talk about whether or not we needed to think about actually training that and specifically rewarding both of those things because they're both equally valid. So we got into some, we got deep into some of that stuff um, and we're still kind of kicking all that around. So, you know, the, the normal, um, the normal way to approach some of this stuff is, is to, you know, Emily talked about it earlier, setting out a, a lineup. Um, but I, um, with my background in cybernetics, I started to think about, well, okay, if we didn't have dogs doing this job and we actually, if there was somewhere, uh, you know, a magical mechanical sensor that could do this job, how would we design that to work? And it's unlikely that we would ask the sensor to um, run down a line of, of possible answers and tell us which one was correct. Um, we wouldn't we wouldn't present it in that way. We would actually just give one sample to the sensor and we would say to the sensor, is the snail odor present in here or not? Yes or no. Um, so that sets up a completely different type of of type of um, scenario for the dog. Um, so and in that situation, both a hit and a correct rejection would both be correct answers. So we wondered about whether or not we needed to train two different responses for the dog to give them the opportunity to actually tell us that. And if we do that, then we also have to make sure that the response cost, in other words, the way that the dog tells us about that has to be similar. So it can't be more costly and more effortful for the dog to say yes or no, otherwise you build in some bias. Um, and we also have to make sure that both of those responses are reinforced and they have to be reinforced in the same way with the same equal level of, of, of reinforcement. Wow, Joe, I'm so glad you brought all of that up. And thank you for, I know we're going back five minutes now, but all of the definitions and everything, that's all so important with this. And yeah, really, I think it makes perfect sense to think about this. This is not your normal search task. The dog is not examining the environment for a trace of target odor and following a scent cone to actually find their target odor. It's kind of a a yes, no, go, no, go procedure more like. So, um, yeah, what did that, what did that, how did that approach end up working? And is that, uh, is that the approach you ended up ultimately taking? We are, we're working on it now. <laughs> there's, there's no answer to that yet, but there will be. Ask again next year. Um, cause, cause that's pretty much present day. Now, um, I want to interject here that I was speaking with one of the grad students um, the other day and saying a single um, a single port essentially versus multiple ports versus lineups. Um, I just I wanted to get some more thoughts on on that, and so. Uh, we were discussing how costly it is in terms of effort and how much how much um, effort goes into checking a five or eight can lineup. That's incredibly mentally taxing, and that a single port, you know, essentially yes or no, that that can um, work in your favor then. But with complex sense. And I would imagine that we have a pretty complex scent um, picture for both the snail and everything around it, that sometimes having a few other ports, maybe uh, two or three where the dog can go back and forth, that can give them something to compare. And that so sometimes that actually provides an advantage to a single port. And so um, kind of science in, in motion right now is, um, you know, your your dog could do um, uh, a single port where there's a yes or no answer is one thing, but also a um, yes here, but no there. Um, you know, how would you train that? But would that give you functionally better results than a single port? Um, 
I, I don't know the answer to that, but um, but something to consider in the future um, of this project. Yeah, that is really interesting, and uh, I'm I'll, I'm having flashbacks to all of the the conversations that I've heard. Um, uh, Dr. Hall having about, you know, their olfactometer three trillion or whatever it is that they're on to now in their lab. And, you know, it really sounds like, yeah, you guys have, this project is such a big shift from a typical search. And I, it's just so interesting to think about trying to bring all of these things in. So, um, you know, so we've brought in the other two or three dogs now. Morgan, I'm not sure if you're working with um, Sunny on this as well, or if it's just just Jesse at this point. But what have some of your considerations been as far as helping these dogs that are more used to ranging and doing more of a broad search actually get used to whether it's this lineup or you do more of like these single port um, go, no go sorts of setups? Um, I can imagine, Laura, for your labs, that can be really challenging are you using the same reinforcers like let's talk nitty-gritty about what this actually looks like to get the dogs from searching acres and acres and acres to just checking you know a max of maybe eight pots you know i actually have a lot to say about this one because jesse is a really challenging dog he um i mean he's wonderful but he's challenging he is so good at searching big areas for stinky decomposing things when I have tried to switch him to other target odors, he does really good in new environments, like inside the house. But once I take him back outside again, it all falls apart. And I truly think it's because, you know, that stimulus package goes back to like, we're searching outside, we're looking for stinky dead things. And he just blows right past these odors that he's learned really, really well inside, even, even in tiny, tiny amounts. So for me, I think the biggest key for us is going to be really setting up a new environment. We're not going to be able to be searching ports outdoors because Jesse's going to default back into like, we're looking for dead stuff. Um, we're going to have to do it like probably in a room and just make everything different. This is not a search task. Now we're, we're not doing the search trick right now. We're doing the, the like, port trick where we're checking this hole we're checking this hole good job you've done it and just make it completely completely opposite of anything he knows otherwise he defaults into his old behaviors and they're good behaviors but they're not what we need for this project i know when um we landed at one we got funding let me say that to continue to support this program and i'm very very grateful for that too because i feel like the stuff we're learning along the way can apply across so many other projects that maybe haven't even been discovered yet in the world of conservation detection. Um, but when it, you know, that funding came in, I was like, yay, awesome. And here we go. We're going to try and figure out how to do this, you know, right from the get go, given all of the information we have. And I mentioned something straight out to Joe. I remember we were talking in just in our normal daily um, meetings that like, I don't know if my dogs are going to like doing a single, like, yes, no thing, right? And then, like, I sat on it and slept on it a while. I'm like, it's you, Laura. Like, it's not the dogs. They are incredibly smart, and they can figure out contextual clues and all that stuff to understand, like, this is what you're doing now. And at the end of the day, they're going to be thrilled that they get a reward, you know, for doing the correct task. So, um we're still developing what this training protocol is going to look like across the organization because we'll have four dogs you know, two of them live in my home, but the other two are in different homes with different handlers and really developing, you know, like the dog gets the freeze-dried cheese regardless if it's the yes or the no, you know, so you really help eliminate any kind of bias. And it's hard with labs sometimes, right? Because they're like, I'll eat anything. So <laughs> just trying to really put those parameters and framework around, like how can we do what we can to make this a clean task right and joe and morgan and i and emily are working on what that what that's going to look like because we probably won't kick off training until like august or september of this year so we have some time to really figure figure this out that's really exciting and you know i've been meaning to say it a couple times but congrats on the grant it's really cool that you guys are going to be able to actually explore this and it's not just one of those projects is going to fade away because of lack of funding. I 
I, it breaks my heart to think about how common that is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned. So I, Laura, I gather from photos that normally your dogs are dogs that get toys in the field, but for this, we're thinking freeze dried cheese, which is kind of why I'd asked about reinforcers. Um, am I, am I right about that? Are your dogs normally, um, toy reward guys kind of in the field? Um, they, it depends. <laughs> it depends on the day. They typically sure. get food reinforcers for me. Um, mm -hmm. but Betty, I'll also mix in a little bit of toy play as well. Um, okay. but for this project in particular, I'll probably use, I'll say for the transactional part of things when they, you know, do the yes, no behavior, they'll get a cookie. And then at the end of a session, like given all done, we're, you know, done now, we're going to go play then. Usually that's how I break up these kind of tasks for them. That makes sense. And that was, yeah, again, that was kind of why I had asked that because I, <laughs> I know from experience with Barley, um, that trying to work on lineups and yes, no sorts of things with him with toys involved works, um, exponentially less well than doing search tasks with him with toy rewards involved. Um, and yeah, when you kind of want this level of like focus and consideration and careful, maneuvering it seems like that can be pretty tricky if you've got um big feelings about toys involved you can get a lot more repetitions and not that we're going to be aiming for a hundred and five minutes or anything but i feel like you know if you wanted to do 10 repetitions in a couple minutes i think that's just easier too with the food like here you go totally. food's done yeah yeah well and even just thinking about the logistics of having a good training space where you can give a toy reward in a way that is rewarding for the dog that can be challenging thinking about substrate and knocking over all of your your you know your fitness fit pause stuff um if you're even if, even if you're lucky enough to have a training room that has your fit pause and it's not you know your laptop that you're worried about the dog knocking over with a weird bounce um <laughs> So that makes perfect sense. So what um, what else would you guys like to kind of circle back to or bring up as far as this project? What are you excited about for the future? Just anything else that we haven't covered yet about this project and discrimination in mud snails? Um, can I ask a question of you guys? Have you um, considered, um, as you are preparing for this next wave, the proportions of positive and negative samples um, that you present to the dogs so that so that the dogs get enough exposure to the positives but then when you um yeah just have you guys considered that i would say it's still under development because this is this is year three of this project now and every year we've identified what didn't work and what did work and then amended it and so like we're at that stage where we're looking back so that we can look forward. So it's something that is on the list to consider, but we're still working on the plans. One of the things that um, I've been thinking about in relation to this is um, not so much about the proportion, but about the making sure that those samples are presented in the same session so that the dog gets a clear con a contrast between what's yes and what's no in the same session and really starts to be able to pick out the characteristics of what makes it um, a yes response and what makes it a no response. And, it, and that to me is like the real crux of this, is making it really, really clear for the dog so that the stimulus control is, you know, when the odour is present, I do this, and when the odour is not present, I do this. And if, you, if we can um, make that very clear, um, and we, so the way to achieve that, I think, would be to start with um, examples that are very simple in both of those categories and then gradually increase the complexity so that you get, first of all, you start off with very, um, you know, very obviously different, so very f far out examples and non-examples, and then you slowly start to bring the, the examples and non-examples closer and closer in, but you don't start there. So we want to try and eliminate as many mistakes so that the dog never has to go through like a, too many extinction cycles and get confused. We need to try and keep the clarity um, as much as possible all the way through the training process. Just thinking of people that are listening or really new to this whole topic, Joel, when you say like a really out there example in a task, can you give an example of like what that odor or item might be that the dogs would be presented with that would be a no answer? 
I give an example on a project, a different project. Sure. That I've actually had experience of. Um, so uh, a year or so ago, I was asked to um, do a project searching for a rare endangered plant. Um, and so I had to teach um, I had to teach Willow how to find this plant with a very small subset of examples because obviously it was very rare. So I think I had six of them or something. So that was challenging to start with. But one of the concerns was that there was um, a common variety that there was there was suspicion or concern that it because it was so closely genetically related, it would have a similar odour. And so my training approach for that was to start off once once I started um, once I'd built the odor relevance for the actual odor, I then took that odor out into the environment. But I started off putting it in environments where it was not going to come anywhere close to being that species. So I put it out in in environments that had lots of plants, but no plants that were anywhere near that that um, that genus. And then then I started to put it out into places where I knew there was going to be other Helleniums, but not but not the common variety, not the Autumnale. And then I gradually um, moved it toward, uh, in, into environments where I got closer and closer to it until I actually put it, you know, right right next to the the common variety. And by then, because she'd had enough examples of of yes, not not you know yes and not not yes, um, she showed no interest in the common variety. So that's that's the kind of thing I mean. It's like you you um, you you you. I think about it as like mathematical set theory. So there's one set is New Zealand mudsnail odour and one set is not New Zealand mudsnail odour. And those two sets do not interact. They are not, there is no union or, or intersection between those two. But there is lots and lots of different, everything that, every basically there's New Zealand mudsnail odour and everything else. Um, and so we wouldn't probably start off with giving them uh, a native snail or another mollusk as the as the non-example you would start off with something completely completely different like yeah, an orange slice <laughs> right? <laughs> or something yeah, right? Right. yeah. Or, or I mean, ass or whatever right yeah 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 well and i think for anyone at home who's curious about this and would like to learn more the kind of foundational paper that underpins all of this it would be discrimination learning with and without errors by hs terrace it's from 1963 but it talks about um, training pigeons to click a specific color key and they start with one key being much larger and much brighter and everything than the other key um, so that they're functionally learning to ignore the stimulus that they're supposed to ignore by the fact that that stimulus is really, really ignorable. And again, we'll link that paper in the show notes for anyone who's curious about it. Um, and we'll also link a paper by Eileen and dogs um, or an article by Eileen and dogs that covers it um, in a little bit more kind of quote unquote plain English for everyone. Um, but Joe just gave a really lovely breakdown. I do have a question and you all might not know the answer to this, but why or are they also using eDNA for this project? And if not, why not? I'm curious why eDNA did not come into the picture as well as or instead of dogs, potentially. Um, they have used eDNA for all sorts of aquatic invasive species, but in the state of Wisconsin um, in particular, they got so backlogged in the labs doing the analysis. That was one reason why they <laughs> have kind of moved away from that. Um, the cost involved with the eDNA analysis is also, you know, it needs to be justified, right? So when we did our testing day in November 2020, even though that's what we've moved away from, you know, with this, the lineups, the dogs were going down and back in like 30 seconds and indicating like, it's here, it's here. And the people were like, that's, you get the results like that, <laughs> you know, like, so just seeing the dog's capabilities was something really like, ooh. Okay. Um, also, eDNA has known has been known to be um, unreliable in some regards as well. So there's there's multiple factors of why um, they might not be moving away completely from eDNA, but maybe being more selective with the usage of eDNA for this particular species. Excellent. Yeah. No. Thank you for that. I just especially if we've got any biologists in the audience who are kind of sitting here screaming, "Why not eDNA?" Um, <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else that we wanted to circle back to or other training things? This has just been so fascinating and I'm, I'm so excited to see where this goes in the next couple of years for y'all. We'll have to have you back on and, 
everything probably after. It sounds like this is something that you're thinking about going for publication with as well. Seems like a good fit for that. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of nodding. <laughs> I have one last thought. Um, and it's kind of like a, a soapbox um, sometimes of mine. Um, I just wanted to, I've been thinking about all of this. I'm just thinking that science is a process of discovery. Um, and sometimes getting data that contradicts our hypotheses um, should be considered as just as valuable and sometimes even more valuable than getting a, a confirming our hypotheses. But that's not always the case because of human nature. Um, it's quite hard for us to think that way sometimes. And we're going to be um, probably experimenting with some some hypotheses that you know perhaps are not the, the kind of normal way that um, detection work is done. And so I, I have this um, quote on my wall from a, so there's a, a trainer called Hilary Hankey. She trains uh, birds. She's a bird trainer. And she just recently did a course um, entitled How Wonderful I Was Wrong. And I just thought that was just such a lovely, just such a lovely sentiment that I actually wrote it down and put it on a post-it note and I have it on my wall. So I'm trying to embrace the How Wonderful I Was Wrong um, philosophy with uh, with some of the things on this project. Yeah, that seems like a lovely note to end it on. And no, again, I think as much as we love um, finding all of the places that detection dogs are the perfect, amazing solution for everything, I think really highlighting the times where maybe they still will be, but how hard it can be and how creative we have to be and the level of expertise needed to succeed with this is really important. And also potentially the times where um, detection dogs may or may not end up being uh the end all be all for any given project. So thank you all so much. Um, Laura, why don't you remind us where we can find Conservation Dogs Collective and how we can support y'all. And Emily, same for you with, with your work. Yeah, you can follow along in our adventures <clears throat> on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, um, Pinterest. We have a YouTube channel as well. And then our website is a really great resource to learn all about us. That's conservationdogscollective.org. So I'm with Auburn University, and you can find um, Canine Performance Sciences on Facebook. Yeah. And we'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes. As always, for everyone at home, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill sets. You can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, join our online course, join our Patreon, all that good stuff over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.